0: Let me me give a little bit of teaching here as well. And you guys have done a lot of my work for me already, so I'm just thankful for that. But let's again remind ourselves before we jump in, Mark's large goal for writing this narrative. Where do we go back to almost every time to see the goal that Mark has for writing this gospel narrative? Where do we go back to? Yes. Mark 1.1. Look at that, if you would, if you can go back there. Again, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So how is this beginning? What is this gospel? And who's Jesus Christ? His identity is the Son of God. We've already read about and seen the beginning of this gospel. John the Baptist preparing the way. We have Jesus coming out to John the Baptist in order to be baptized, identifying with his people Israel in order to fulfill all righteousness. We see Jesus' clear identity as the Son of God as he was raised out of the water. We have the approval, the vocal approval of God the Father, this is my Son. And you have the physical descending of the Spirit upon Jesus we remember the victory over Satan in the wilderness that affirmed him as the perfect second Adam. And true Israel, as again, he used the, the, the passages from Deuteronomy 6 to 8 to answer Satan. And that passage is when the people of Israel called, called out into the wilderness and called to be faithful. And again, we know they did not remain faithful, but Jesus did. Then he began preaching a gospel, the beginning of the gospel. He began preaching a gospel of repentance and of faith. He called his disciples, as Jerry and Todd pointed out. He's beginning to establish his authority through his miracles, through his healing, and also through his teaching. So let's once again use the information we gathered today to set the scene. He just taught in the synagogue, and that was on the Sabbath. He was astonishing the hearers because he taught as one who has authority. And again, through our knowledge of the rest of scriptures, we understand why. He's the author of scripture. He's the main character of the scripture. As we sang before the message on Sunday, he is the the central figure, the hero of the story of the Bible, the hero of our redemption. So no wonder he's able to teach in an authoritative manner. And then he revealed his authority over the spiritual realm by casting out an unclean spirit, rebuking it. And the stir that it caused was not small amongst those that saw that. They began to question and wrestle with the question of who is this Jesus, the one who teaches with authority, and he casts out unclean spirits. So this is what he just did He gathered on the Sabbath in the synagogue, essentially preached. Then he went toe-to-toe with a demon. And any of you who have taught, moms who are constantly teaching and discipling, any of you who taught the word as, as, as standing up and proclaiming, as preaching or teaching, could probably affirm and attest to the fact that that is a draining exercise physically. When you're, when you're preparing for a message, you, at least a week, if not more, you're wrestling with that text. You're studying it. You're trying to see the historical and cultural context, how that passage fits in the overall theme of Scripture. You're, you're begging the Spirit to reveal application to you that would help your hearers understand what is being taught. And then you get up and you pour it out with passion now, personally, I've never moved from preaching to confronting a demon like Jesus did. But I can imagine the, the physical toll that just this much has already taken on Jesus' human nature. You know, he, he deserves to go home, right? And to eat and sit and turn on a football game and rest. But what do we see him doing? The next page of the story that we looked at here is all happening on the same day. They immediately went to Simon and Andrew's house, probably to do what most of us do after gathering to hear the word preached. We go and enjoy an afternoon meal and some fellowship together. But these disciples had just seen Jesus' authority on full display through his teaching and his casting out of an unclean spirit. And they thought it was very appropriate for them to approach Jesus with a need to tell him about the illness of Peter's mother in law. Jesus' compassionate and merciful heart was stirred by the news of this illness that immediately he went and ministered to her. I was already pointed out, he obviously had the power to be able to just speak and heal, but he took the time. He went. And came to her so he, he offered a comforting presence he, he took her by the hand and he lifted her up once again seeing that he, he has power and authority to heal and restore but ultimate display of meekness of being gentle and lifting one up healing restoring a picture of the gospel and then through these actions this, this fever that was affecting her was healed and her, her actions point to a couple of things, her action of serving. Well, first, we need to realize that this is a demonstration of Jesus' complete healing. Those of us who even go through a common cold or get a fever or a stomach bug or something more serious, even when, when we're relieved from that, it usually takes us a day or two or more to kind of recover our strength. But here we see a complete instantaneous healing that Jesus accomplishes. And then we also see a proper response to Christ's healing through this woman. The word there, serve, is literally the word to deacon. And we get our word deacon from. So she began deaconing. (laughs) She began serving, and most likely in the way that provided nourishment for them, providing food and waiting on tables, as we see other deacons in the scriptures doing. And also interesting to note, so far, this is really the only individual, personal, um, after picture that we have of somebody being healed. We're not exactly sure what happened to the first man that was healed back in the previous passage. We see that the those that witnessed all that were questioning among themselves, but we don't see the results of that other than the fame spreading. But here we have a personal healing and a personal response of service. And then that's enough for a Sabbath day, right? Preaching, confronting demons, going home, healing. But then he continues to serve this people, serve Capernaum. It's it's interesting and and helpful to, to, to see that and verse 32, the evening at sundown, which would signal the end of Sabbath restrictions. And so these folks are observing Jews. These are his people. Then these law-observing townspeople then began to line up at the door. Simon's house becomes a hospital of sorts with the great physician. So after preaching, casting out an unclean spirit, healing a woman from the fever, Jesus continues to serve. Mark, maybe he's using hyperbole here, but we don't really have a reason to not believe the whole city came. And he healed many of them, both of diseases and physical sickness and from demon possession. So this shows us not only his compassion... We also see his desire to serve, that he truly came to bring good news. We're seeing like in a passage like Luke chapter 4, where Jesus is once again teaching in the synagogue. As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. This is Luke 4, verse 17. And he unrolled the scroll, this is Jesus, and found the place where it was written. It's Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. Although in those days it wouldn't have the chapter verse markings. And this is what he reads. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. What's he going to do next? And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled. And you're hearing, this is who Jesus is who he was prophesied to be, and what he has come to accomplish. So it shows his compassion, his reason for coming, but then, as was already mentioned, it continues to undergird Mark's establishment of Jesus' authority as the true Son of God. And here we have a beautiful reflection of his human nature and his divine nature. And as he will say later in in chapter 10 of, of Mark Jesus saying, I came not to be served, but to serve. And to give my life as a ransom for many. And then he makes what seems to be an interesting, maybe curious request. At the end, he he commands these demons to be quiet, to not speak. Because why? Because they knew him. to study this one out, because when, on, a, on, a, on a cursory reading, you would say, yeah, okay, we understand they're demons, you know, they're, they're of the, the legion of Satan, but if they know who he is and we're going to go proclaim who Jesus is, wouldn't even that be an incredible work? And wouldn't that help spread the name and the fame of Jesus? But what they knew of him was not all that Jesus desired others Know about him. In other words, their message would have been incomplete. Because remember, they know who he is, but they refuse to submit to his authority. They're not seeing healing and restoring, they're the ones being cast out. They are really the, the, the recipients of his authoritative power, but not in a healing sense, but in a rejection sense. So yes, he is the authoritative son of God, as that unclean spirit cried out. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But they would be used, these demons would be used to mislead people. How So, again, we're going to see throughout their other gospels, and this one as well, the Israelites, God's people, yes, we're waiting for the Messiah. But we're going to continue to see that Jesus and the kingdom that he's inaugurating is not what they were expecting they wanted a conquering hero who's going to come and overthrow the Romans and establish Jewish dominance. But Christ's mission on earth was not that. So the full identity of Jesus would not have been proclaimed by these demons. They may have proclaimed that he's the Holy One of God and he has authority. But we have to realize that Jesus's identity on earth could not be fully understood, completely understood, outside the task that he was called to do. And that was a task to fully obey the Father and humble himself to death on a cross. These demons were not going to proclaim that. The time for public proclamations is coming. There will be time for that. But now is not the time, and the demons are not the instruments, to proclaim Jesus' full identity. So let's close with a few applications. So first, let's look at the example of Simon and the other disciples. They witnessed the authority and the power of Jesus. And then they began to realize that Christ has the power to teach with authority He has the power and authority to call me to serve him, and I will drop everything to do that. He has the power to cast out unclean spirits and to teach with all authority. It's almost like there's this light bulb moment for these disciples that Christ can change circumstances in my life too. He has the sovereign power to do that. So they unashamedly told Jesus about Simon's mother-in-law's sickness. How about us? I trust we witness the power and authority of Jesus in our life to cleanse us from sin. And we follow him as one of his disciples. And when we speak to our God, we do so through the power and the authority of the name of Jesus We can come boldly before the throne of grace, just as these disciples did with Jesus by their side. We can come boldly before the throne of grace because Jesus, as we read in Hebrews, was the forerunner or the pioneer of our faith. He went before us. He paved the way for us to go boldly into the throne room of the God of the universe. He did that through the gospel. So again, we don't want it to be cliche, but when you talk about gospel-centeredness or the gospel changes everything, the gospel changes, our, completely changes our relationship to God. And now as believers, as followers of Jesus, it completely transforms how we address God. We go through our Savior. So we see an example of Simon and the other disciples, a boldness to tell Jesus, to talk to him. Now we also see an example in Simon's mother-in-law of a right response to Christ's healing and restoration. Essentially, she was given a second lease on life and she immediately used it to serve those around her. So has the power and authority of Jesus, has his gospel, has it shape your prayers? Does it shape your, your posture before God? And now... Has it shaped the way that you serve? We've given, been given a, a spiritual second life, right? And it should affect the way that we serve here on earth. Even the meaning, you know, what seems to be menial tasks like waiting on tables, preparing food, cleaning up tables, serving others in those tasks are meant to be reflections of the grace of God in our lives. So everything that you do, when shaped by the truths of the gospel and a response of God's grace in your life, is a way for you to reflect the goodness of God in your life. And then we see Jesus. We we see Jesus as a seemingly non-stop servant. And now before we immediately make the, the, the leap to say, okay... That's me. I need, to be, I need to be more like that. Maybe you do. Maybe God's going to convict you of some laziness in your life. But We also need to recognize we're not Jesus. We don't have the power and authority that was invested in him. God won't be impressed with us if we just kind of add more stuff to our life to make us more busy. I think what we need to see here. Is that one that people need, that we need to be used to point people to, are not the, is not the busyness of our life and a lot of buzz and activity at 80 Clinton Street that people can stand from afar and say, Wow, those guys, that church is always busy and hopping. There's always stuff going on, but it's all internal. The only need to see here is the one that people need is Jesus. The whole city needed his teaching and his power, and he served them. What about Concord and your town? Do they just need your busyness, or do they need to see Jesus, the way that you serve and the way that you pray? They don't just need busy Christians at 80 Clinton Street, but they need us to be in positions that we can point people to this servant, Jesus. We can do this in our homes, the way we serve and disciple, the way we do our work to please God and not men, by our unashamed witness when opportunities present themselves. But as we even get a sneak peek at next week, if you will read ahead, Jesus took time to get away. Jesus took time to commune with his Father. So we need to be sure our relationship with our God is vibrant through our reading of the word and our prayer and our fellowship and our commitment to the church. And out of the overflow of our relationship with God, we can point people to the one who will never disappoint, who will never tire. That's the God-man Jesus. And Jesus did so much good for this city. As Brian pointed out, he taught, he healed, he cast out demons, but even his physical healing was temporary. Lazarus, raised from the dead, he died again. Peter's mother-in-law, I'm sure, died. All these that were healed experienced physical death. He was about doing his Father's will to redeem a people for himself through his obedience and his sacrifice on the cross and resurrection. So Jesus had an even greater agenda than healing, even though that was used to show compassion and used to show his authority. If he was about healing as many diseases as possible, that would have been all we read about. He would have been going everywhere just trying to heal as many people as possible and say, my mission has been accomplished. When did he cry out that his mission was accomplished? It's on the cross. It is finished. So may we, like Christ, keep our eyes focused on the greater agenda. That we're ambassadors for Christ. That he promises to use to reconcile men to God. I think it's an appropriate quote for me to close with. It's it's by Martin Lloyd-Jones, the English medical doctor turned pastor theologian I want you to listen to this and see how accurately this helps us reflect about how the church can apply this example of Jesus' ministry here on earth and then we'll be dismissed that's what he says the primary task of the church is not to educate man it's not to heal him physically or psychologically it's not to make him happy I will go further it's not even to make him good These are things that accompany salvation. And when the church performs her true task, she does incidentally educate men, give them knowledge and information. She does bring them happiness. She does make them good and better than they were. My point is that those are not her primary objectives. Her primary purpose is not any of these. It is rather to put man into right relationship with God to reconcile man to God. This really does need to be emphasized at the present time because this, it seems to me, is the essence of the modern fallacy. It has come into the church and it's influencing the thinking of many in the church, this notion that the business of the church is to make people happy or to integrate their lives or to relieve their circumstances and improve their conditions. My whole case is that to do that is just to palliate relieve some of the symptoms to give temporary ease, and it doesn't go anywhere beyond that. I'm not saying that it's a bad thing to palliate symptoms, it is not, and it is obviously right and good to do so, but I'm constrained to do this, that though to palliate symptoms or to relieve them is not bad in and of itself, it can be bad it can have a bad influence and a bad effect from the standpoint of the biblical understanding of man and his needs. And who knew that better than Jesus? It can become harmful in this way that by palliating the symptoms, you can conceal the real disease. The business of the church and the business of preaching, and she alone can do this, is to isolate the radical problems and to deal with them in a radical manner this is specialist work. It's the peculiar task of the church. The church is not one of a number of agencies. She's not in competition with the cults. She's not in competition with other religions. She's not in competition with the psycholog- psychologist or any other agency, political or social, or whatever it may chance to be. But Again, the primary task, call people to reconcile with God through Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful again for your word and the time we've had together. May you imprint these truths in our hearts, cause change, help us to seek the reconciliation of man to God in our spheres. And by doing that, we are seeking to do them the best good that we could ever do them. And that is to give them eternal life through Jesus, to point them to Christ who gives them eternal life. So, Father, may we be signposts that just say, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. And through our preaching and teaching and ministries, may that be our goal. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.